We have such a special treat today. Um, some of you may be um, newer, maybe you're visiting today, um, so I'll just fill you in a little bit. Um, we in this house believe that you need spiritual moms and dads in your life. And if you're on mission, you're also going to have spiritual sons and daughters in your life. Right? That's a healthy model that um, Jesus gave us. And we believe it's actually really important for us to learn how to position our hearts as sons and daughters. Because it's hard to be a good father if you've never had the heart of a son. Right? Those positions are really important. And so um, Bill and Marilyn Leach have been coming for quite a while now. Um, he served as my pastor. He served in the district for 27 years. and was my pastor for many, many years while I was pastoring. And so it was a natural thing to say, hey, would you come in and invest in us as a spiritual dad in the house? Um, we were just kind of learning um, things about the Lord in terms of positioning our hearts to receive. And they were willing to do it, to take time out of their schedule. They've come so many times to invest in us. And so we are blessed in the house today that Pastor Bill is here to minister to us. And I know if you'll position your heart, there are things that God is going to bring alive, give you insight to, give you revelation to, bring transformation to as we come to his word. Amen? Amen. Pastor Leach, come on out. Thanks. Love you, Love you. Thank you. Bless you. Thank you. Good morning. Wow, it's great to be in the house of the Lord today, and Marilyn and I are so pleased to be with you, Pastor Rachel and Mitch and your family, and yesterday we had the privilege of hanging out with uh, some of the leaders, and it's always fun when we get to do that, and it's always fun for us to be here at the assembly uh, here in Jackson. Again, we love you, love Mitch, love your boys. What a great family and uh, what a great leadership team and it's exciting what the Lord is doing here in Jackson uh, through us, through our church. And um, I'm excited about Huddle. I hope that you will become a part of that. Uh, that's the early church model, the uh, early church and the overflow of the baptism of the Holy Spirit were giving themselves to worship and fellowship of connecting with one another, sharing. The Bible word is koinonia, where we share life together. And if you're not part of a huddle group, let me underscore and re-underscore. That's vitally important. So I hope you'll join uh, one of those huddles, and uh, it'll be great. And uh, it's a real honor for uh, Marilyn and me to be with you today. Uh, we uh, left the district office, I'm not even sure when now, about four or five years ago, with the hope that uh, God would allow us to uh, get back to local churches in a little more sustained way. We had the privilege of pastoring Bethany Assembly and Adrian for 17 years. And then in the district office, we, we gave encouragement to a lot of churches, uh, but it was a little more hit and miss. And so uh, we've had the joy, Meryl and I, of uh, helping four churches in transition over a, over a period of time and uh, are thoroughly enjoying this season of our lives. Uh, I'd like to encourage you to, if you have your Bibles, turn to Jonah chapter 4. want to look at the uh, city of Nineveh. You know, God loves cities. And um, uh, he, we started in the Garden of Eden, but God uh, placed Adam and Eve there and said, I want you to see what you can do with, with my world. It's my world, but I, I want to give you a leadership over it. And um, we're going to end up in a city. And the city we end up in, New Jerusalem, I believe is a city that we should have built had we not fallen uh, from God's grace and, and mercy. And uh, God cares for cities. He loves cities. He loves Jackson. 
And uh, I, I think we're going to see that as we look at uh, Jonah chapter 4. And so let's uh, look at it this morning. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O oh Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew very faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I'm angry enough to die. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? And may the Lord add his blessing to his word today. Lieutenant John Blanchard stood up from the bench, straightened his army uniform and studied the crowd of people making their way through Grand Central Station. He looked for the girl whose heart he knew, but whose face he'd never seen, he, the girl with the rose. His interest in her had begun 13 months before in a Florida library. Taking a book off the shelf, he found himself intrigued, not with the words of the book, but with the notes penciled in the margin. The soft handwriting reflected a thoughtful soul and insightful mind. In front of the book, he discovered the previous owner's name, Miss Hollis Maynell. With time and effort, he located her address. She lived in New York City. He wrote her a letter introducing himself and inviting her to correspond. The next day, he was shipped overseas for service in World War II. During the next year and one month, the two grew to know each other through the mail. Each letter was a seed falling on a fertile heart. A romance was budding. Blanchard requested a photograph, but she absolutely refused. She felt that if he really cared, it wouldn't matter what she looked like. When the day finally came for him to return from Europe, they scheduled their first meeting. 7 o'clock p.m. at Grand Central Station in New York. You'll recognize me, she wrote, by the red rose I'll be wearing on my lapel. So at 7 o'clock p.m., he was in the station looking for a girl whose heart he loved, but whose face he'd never seen. I'll let Mr. Blanchard tell you what happened. A young woman was coming toward me, her figure long and slim. Her blonde hair lay back in curls from her delicate ears. Her eyes were as blue as flowers. 
Her lips and chin had a gentle firmness, and in her pale green suit, she was like springtime come alive. I started toward her entirely forgetting to notice that she was not wearing a rose. As I moved, a small, provocative smile curved her lips. Going my way, sailor, she murmured. Almost uncontrollably, I made one step closer to her, and then I saw Miss Hollis Maynell. She was standing almost directly behind the girl, a woman well past 40, very young. She had graying hair tucked under a worn hat. The green... The girl in the green suit was walking quickly away. I, I felt as though I was split in two. So keen was my desire to follow her, and yet so deep was my longing for the woman whose, whose spirit had truly companioned me and upheld my own. And there she stood. Her, her pale face was gentle and sensible. Her gray eyes had a warm and kindly twinkle. I did not hesitate. My fingers gripped the small, worn, blue leather copy of the book that was to identify me to her. This would not be love, but it would be something precious, something perhaps even better than love, a, a friendship for which I had been and must ever be grateful. I squared my shoulders and, and saluted and held out the book to the woman, even though while I spoke, I felt choked by the bitterness of my disappointment. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm Lieutenant John Blanchard, and you must be Miss Hollis Maynell. I'm so glad you could meet me. May I take you to dinner? The woman's face broadened into a tolerant smile. I don't know what this is about, son, she answered. But the young lady in the green suit who just went by begged me to wear this rose on my coat. And she said, if you were to ask me to dinner, I should tell you she is waiting for you in the big restaurant across the street. She said it was some kind of test. Pretty smart, wasn't she? Tell me who you love, Say wrote, and I'll tell you who you are. Can I repeat that? Tell me who you love, I'll tell you who you are. You know, with God, that's the test, the big test, we might say. The great commandment, the great test, is do we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and do we love our neighbor as we love ourselves? The book of Jonah is a dramatic love story. Now, any good drama has a protagonist, the hero agonizing for the good, and an antagonist. In this story, God is the protagonist. He loves big, unbelieving, unjust, violent, pagan cities. In contrast, it is the prophet, and by extension, you and me who are cast in the role of the city-disdaining, city-phobic, religious, moral antagonists. Three things strike me in this story. And, and if you're not familiar with it, I encourage you this week to go back and read the book of Jonah so you can have all of this firmly in mind. But there are three things about this, this story. First is God's call to the city. Second is God's view of the city. And third, God's love for the city. God's call, God's view, and God's love for the city. First of all, God's call. The book of Jonah can actually be outlined by the three calls God issues to the prophet Jonah. He says to him to go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach against it for the evil that has come up before me. 
The drama opens with the first call. Jonah, of course, instead of going to Nineveh, he heads the other way. He doesn't want any part of this. He heads toward Tarshish, and there's the storm, and he's thrown overboard, and the giant fish comes and swallows him. And you know, by the way, uh, why Jonah, you know, why the fish didn't kill Jonah, he wasn't ready to digest yet, and so he spit him up. And so the second call, the second call comes when God issues this offer that can't be refused. You know, hey, you know, either get out of the fish and go to Nineveh or, or perish. And so Jonah decides he better go preach. And, and then at the conclusion of the book, there is this implied or inferred appeal to love this large, dangerous, pagan city. God calls Jonah from his comfort zone where everyone looked like him, subscribed to his values, it was familiar, it was safe. He drags him kicking and screaming, insisting on the unspeakable for Jonah to love a city he fears and hates. It's not a unique call. Lest we think this is too much of a generalization, a, a few centuries later, the Jews again find themselves forcefully carried off by God to the next big world-class city of their day, the city of Babylon. This time, the mode of transportation isn't a fish, but an army. The exiles come to the outskirts of the city, and like Jonah, they have no interest in going any further. The suburbs will do just fine, thank you very much. <laughs> After all, they surmise, this is, this is terrible. We've been yanked from our homes, divorced from everything comfortable, and transported to this wicked place. But that doesn't mean we have to go into Babylon itself. Let's stay out here. Let's form our own little cloister away from the violence. Let's protect our culture and not be tainted by the doctrinal and moral pollution of the city. Let's establish our fortress against the evil society out here. I'm going to show my age and the vast majority of you will have no idea what I'm talking about right now. But their theme song was, Hold the Fort for I Am Coming. We used to sing that as kids. You probably, you don't remember it even, Rachel? You don't, wow. Man, I'm really old. How many of you remember that song? Anybody? Okay. Yes, I see that. I see those. I, two, two people, you know. You know, in the early days of Pentecost, we had this fortress mentality that the evil world and, and was all around us, and we had to protect ourselves. But hold the fort, Jesus says, because I'm coming. I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to snatch you out of this world. That was our theme song. Hold the fort, for I am coming. Jesus whispers still. Okay, enough of that. <laughs> but God writes them a letter in... Uh, in, in Jeremiah, and he says to them, no, I want you to move into the city. I want you to settle, buy property, and build homes. I want you to raise your children and make its life your life. I don't want you to merely see your own little enclave prosper. I want you to pray for and seek the shalom, the peace, the health, the well-being of the city. I want you to bless it. I want you to bless Babylon. I want you to make it whole in all of its functions and aspects. Astounding. 
God created the world to be a fabric with many varied entities woven together to be in beautiful, harmonious, interdependent, knitted web relationships with each other. You know, if I suddenly threw down in front of me thousands of individual threads, it wouldn't be very valuable. It would just be a mess. But if each thread is interwoven over, under, around, and through every other thread so that they interpenetrate each other and are interdependent, it's a far different story. The more interwoven the threads, the more beautiful, strong, warm, healthier, the more at peace they are. Shalom, that's what the word shalom means, well-being, healthy, strong. When people have money, resources, advantages, talents, and they plunge them into the human community, they invest them so that the parks, schools, and housing are great, you have strong social fabric. You experience social shalom. It's, it, it's seen in the Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Now, certainly some of you know that, right? Okay. All right, a few of you know that, you know. Clarence the angel appears to Jimmy Stewart, who is the head of a prominent family. They've been sharing and investing their resources for years. And Clarence says, let me show you, George, what this life, what this place would be like without you. And Bedford Falls becomes Potterville. When you remove George, the rich of the community hold on to their money and the social fabric falls apart. Now the pattern continues in the book of Acts. The early missionaries, especially the Apostle Paul, were urban-centric. But even in the great Pentecostal revival of Acts chapter 2, it is God who has to nudge them out of their comfort zones. This time it's not a fish like with Jonah or an army like with Babylon, but it's persecution becomes the mode of transporting, scattering, and sending the believers out into all the world, sending them on their way. In every region they went, they went to the biggest city. So that by the year 300 A.D., roughly 50% of the populations of urban cities of the Greco-Roman world were Christians. Now, there are at least two reasons God calls his church to give a great amount of our metabolism to cities. There's a head reason and a heart reason. Every time God calls Jonah, he never simply says, I want you to go to Nineveh. He always adds the tagline, that great city. Great cities are big and important. Large cities are strategic. It just makes sense. But the heart factor is intriguing as well. Jonah doesn't want to live in Nineveh, so he vacates, hoping something bad will happen. And he's a racist. He, he doesn't like the Ninevites, and he doesn't like their politics or their lifestyle or their morality. He hates them. They're the enemy of the Jews. And so he sits outside the camp waiting for judgment to come. God judge the city, kill him, annihilate him. He wants it to happen. He pitches his camp 
in a place where a vine springs up overnight, and there are vines like that in that region that, that grow exceedingly fast, and it's green, leafy, shady. The text says that Jonah was exceedingly glad, or in the NIV, he was very glad for the vine. But when God disturbs his comfort again with the withering of the plant, Jonah is so angry, he says, I want to die. And God interrupts his pity party with these words, this observation in verse 10. He says, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came up in a night. And should I not have compassion on Nineveh, should I not care, should I not love that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and all so much cattle. The contrast couldn't be more stark. Jonah cares for a plant. God loves the city. Question, do you know what God's, do you know what Jesus' favorite color is? Anybody know what his favorite color is? You know, we know Jesus loved the mountains, lakes, deserts and gardens. In fact, it would be a fascinating study sometime to just, just look at Jesus' life and what happened in each of those venues. What happened in the desert? What happened around the Sea of Galilee? What happened on the, on the mountaintops and in the Garden of Gethsemane? And those were, those were strategic and key places for Jesus. But do you think his favorite color is green? You know, the poet said, I think I shall never see anything so lovely as a tree. Is that right? Wrong. Is God's favorite color green? Not unless my favorite Martian is real. Anybody remember my favorite? Anybody remember my favorite Martian? All right. Some young people. Wow, that's awesome. God's favorite color is black, brown, yellow, red, and white. God loves the color of flesh. God is saying there is nothing more amazing, nothing more beautiful than a person. God loves cities, towns, and villages because they are chock full of amazing, beautiful, astounding, impressive people. Every bus, every apartment complex, every block crammed with people is chock full of spectacular beauty. Every playground teeming with kids is precious to him. Cities are home to Jesus' friends, the poor, the needy, the disenfranchised. These are people made in the image of God, created to rule and reign with him. They were made with a capacity to reason, choose, communicate, invent, and love God and others. Someone put it like this, man is a critter who can twitter. Jonah is agitated by the loss of the vine, and God is a little, is more than a little ticked off at Jonah. Yeah. Think of the things that made Jesus mad. He was angry at those who damaged children. So mad that he sounded more like mafia than Messiah. He said, if you harm one of these little ones, better for you that a millstone be draped around your neck and you be dropped into the depths of the sea. 
or the secret language of Omerta, better you sleep with a fish. He loved children. His kingdom, he said, was for children before Walt Disney. And the little children came. He also saw red when he came in contact with self-righteous, judgmental, religious people who looked down on Jesus' friends, the ones he showed the most compassion to, the prostitutes, tax collectors, lepers, women, children, and thieves. The people society considered the least and the last. Jesus couldn't stand it when anyone was undervalued. And the stories of his compassion were never told that he had compassion on someone because they deserved it. It was only because they were in need. In fact, it moved him to tears. Two times it's recorded that he wept deeply, once over a person, his friend Lazarus, and the other over a place, a zip code he knew well, Jerusalem. The second thing that stands out in this story is God's unique view of the city. He tells Jonah to go and preach against Nineveh because of its wickedness that has come up against me. Sounds rather conservative, doesn't it? Sounds like a traditional values kind of a person. Sounds like the preacher, you know, preaching fire and brimstone. But then he acts like what any conservative would call a bleeding heart liberal because he relents. The people of Nineveh repent. But do they really? Do they call on the name of Jehovah? Do they enter into a new covenant? Do they convert? It doesn't seem so. They probably say, oh, you're right. We've been too violent. We're really sorry. Please don't hurt us. And although in that moment, I'm sure it was sincere, God knew, and we know from history, it was superficial at best. They didn't relent. They didn't change direction. They didn't become a holy society. And Jonah freaks out. He says, God, you bleeding heart liberal. That's in the, in the Hebrew, if you read the lines. He says, you bleeding heart liberal, you will forgive anyone. The most embryonic, half-hearted look in your direction, and you give them a second chance. What's wrong with you? There's another twist to this plot, our story. We are Jonah. Nineveh, God says, has 120,000 people and all so much cattle. What's that about? Now, I know God is an animal lover, but that's not the point here. Cattle represented their assets. It was their wealth. Some well-meaning Christians will look at a city like Detroit or Pontiac or Flint or some sections of Jackson, I'm sure, and say, this is a dark, terrible place, but somebody has to be here and share the good news with these unfortunate people. Is that concern for a city? It may be compassion for individuals, but not for a city. God cares about the cities, towns, and villages. He's interested in the shalom, the economy, the health, the safety, the housing. He's not just in love with individual souls. He loves the community. On August 24th, 410 AD, the city of Rome experienced its 9-11. 
That was the date the army of the Goths sacked Rome. They came over the walls, killing, raping, plundering, and burning. It was the first time the city of Rome had been attacked in a thousand years. Now, this attack was unique in the ancient world because the Goths didn't stay and occupy. They plundered the city and left. The people were shattered. If Rome wasn't safe, what was? And into this vacuum came Augustine with his classic book, The City of God. Augustine said, the reason you're freaking out is you, are, you have confused the eternal city, which was the moniker that Rome was called. It was called Rome, the eternal city. You've confused the city of Rome, the eternal city, with the city of God. Christians, he taught, were simultaneously members of both cities. But as a member of the city of God, a citizen of the city of God, you are absolutely safe. If you kill members of an earthly city, it's all over. But if you kill a citizen of the city of God, all you're doing is moving them to better quarters in the city. Augustine taught that the city of God was not just good people living next to bad people. It is the gospel of the kingdom changing the political community that is built on self-interest and power and transforming it more and more into a culture based on concern for God's name, service, and love, not taking but giving. To make his case, Augustine referenced the two great plagues that influenced his time. During the reign of Marcus Aurelius, around A.D. 165, an epidemic of what may have been smallpox killed somewhere between a third and a fourth of the population, including Marcus Aurelius himself. A little less than a century later came a second epidemic at which at its, in which at its height, 5,000 people were dying daily in the city of Rome alone. For the most part, people panicked. There was no guidance in the writings of Homer, no commands from the Greek god Zeus to care for dying people while putting your own life at risk. Greek historian Thucydides wrote how people in Athens responded during an earlier plague. This is what he wrote. They died with no one to look after them. Indeed, there were many houses in which all the inhabitants perished through, any, through lack of any intention for care. The bodies of the dying were heaped up one on top of the other. No fear of God or law of man had a restraining influence. Now, what happened in Greece was being repeated in Rome. Here's the, here's the account of another historian in that, in that era. At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treated unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread, of, the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. But there was in the, that world a community of believers, people that followed a man who touched lepers while they were unclean and told his disciples to go and heal the sick. 
Dionysius, a third century bishop of Alexandria, wrote about the plagues. He said, heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need, and ministered to them in Christ. And with them departed their life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors, cheerfully accepting their pains. As Christian communities responded to the hungry and sick, even outsiders took notice. By the late fourth century, an opponent of the faith, Emperor Julian the Apostate, chastised pagan priests for not keeping up. He wrote in a letter to a friend, I think that when the poor happen to be neglected and overlooked by the priests, the impious Galileans, talking about Christians, impious in terms of their pagan ways, the impious Galileans support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. I believe God is calling his church back to our cities, towns, and villages. Like the Jews of Babylon, I believe God is calling his church to go to places where the fabric is breaking down, where the weaker members are falling through, where the interpenetration and interdependence of things is not occurring. He is calling us to take the threads of our lives we take our emotions, our time, our energy, our stuff, our, our money, and we plunge it into the lives of other people through thousands of involvements. Fabric, thread, involvements, over, under, around, through. That's the shalom God wants his church to build. Let's go back to an earlier quote by Dionysius. Heedless of the danger... They took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministered Christ to them. And with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with a disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Where would they get an idea like that? It comes to our third point, God's love for the city. He loves Jackson. They had the same mind in them that was also in Christ Jesus, Philippians 2, who, being God, decided that being God meant to make himself nothing and take the form of a servant and submit to a horrible death on the cross. He who was rich became poor for our sakes that we through his poverty might become rich he took our disease in his body our sickness our sin and he and his blood washes us clean he took it upon himself it's the great reversal of history jesus died the death i should have died so that i could experience his life he died the death i should have died so i could live the life he lived the life I should have lived, died the death I should have died so I could live his life. He, he died the death of a common criminal, one of three that day. Karl Barth, the theologian, insists that it's a grievous theological mistake to port portray Jesus on the cross by himself in pictures or in words, since it does violence to the stories in which three criminals were crucified that day, one good and two bad. <clears throat> 
Jesus did not die alone. We could say with Karl Barth that this was the first Christian community, three people, one good and two bad, one of whom became good. The three crosses of Golgotha challenge every church. If we call ourselves a church, where are the bad people? Jesus died as he lived in the company of bad people. The gospel can be summarized as Jesus ate good food with bad people. We live and die together, good and bad, and we never give up on anyone, no matter how bad. There were three criminals on Golgotha that day. Jesus was as much a thief as those robbers on his left and right. Jesus was the third thief. He pulled off the greatest heist in history in front of their eyes. The third thief had a long criminal record. Jesus robbed the woman at the well, a woman with five husbands. He robbed her of her guilt and shame. He had robbed the cursed and ostracized lepers of their disease and disenfranchisement. Jesus robbed the lame, the sick, and the poor of their disgraced places on the fringe, their dishonored seats at the table. Jesus robbed two blind men of their muteness, and in giving them voice to praise, he gave them vision to see. Jesus had already robbed a crowd of 5,000 people of their complaints and self-pity, and he filled their bodies and their souls with good things. But Jesus, the greatest robber in history, pulled off still a greater caper. You might call it the great soul robbery. Jesus often contrasted sanctimonious, self-righteous Pharisees and the contrite, confessing sinners, such as tax collectors and prostitutes. He robbed all the smug, proud, and pious of their self-sufficiency. Self-reliance hung helpless on the cross with Jesus. Only God's grace can redeem our past and redream our future. This was the most audacious theft through his sacrifice on the cross in his descent into death and hell. Jesus showed just how powerful dependency on God could be. Jesus, crucified among thieves, performed his greatest robbery after his execution. Jesus robbed Satan of his power over sin and death. Jesus robbed death itself of its victory. Jesus ripped off the grave and stung the sting of death's futility and finality. The third thief on Golgotha committed his greatest robbery after he was cut down and buried. He robbed death of its power when he rose again to new life. The most important decision every human being will ever make is this. Will you give Jesus the license to steal? Jesus wants to steal your heart. The story of Calvary asks each of us, in whom will you ultimately put your trust? Will you trust only in yourself, your power, your strength, your goodness? Or will you give Jesus the license to steal? Will you confess that you are at your most basic self a sinner in need of God's mercy and utterly dependent on God's goodness? The third thief wants to rob every day the arrogant of their self-sufficiency, the selfish of their self-centeredness, the humorless of their solemnity, 
the untouchables of their invulnerability, the sick of their disease and doubts about the future, the atheists of their skepticism, the control freaks of their fears and obsessions. But what is the greatest heist Jesus wants to commit on a daily basis? Jesus wants to rob Satan of his power over you and rob the grave of sin and death. To paraphrase an old song that went globally after it was written in 1855, what a thief we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to steal. <laughs> the third thief stole our griefs, our sins, our hurts, our sorrows, and all the things he bore on the cross. That's our message to this region. That's the mission of the assembly. God wants to use us to plunge our lives and our, and our energies and our passions and, and our resources and, and, and into, into building up this community, this world. That's why we believe in missions, by the way. When we support missions, we're supporting missionaries who are, who are providing communities with clean water and, and good schools and, and hospitals. And, and along with it, of course, they're preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, that that's the only thing that can save and change a person's life. When you support a missionary, you are supporting Jesus' mission in the world. But it's not just supporting those outside. It's reaching our own community with our lives and our talents and our abilities and our resources to make it a better place to bring shalom, God's shalom, God's peace, his wellness to our, to our city. God's called our fellowship to be a hospital room, and it's not a good metaphor because it implies people come to us, and that's not really the gospel. We go to them. But for a better, maybe, a, maybe a, a, an ambulance system that's going out or whatever, a mobile, a mobile hospital or whatever it is, but a place where the poor and the hurting and the bruised and the lost and the down and out and the up and out come and through our lives and our ministries are saved and healed and delivered by the power of God. That's God's call for us. He loves Jackson. He loves Jackson. Ethan Allen was for years an army officer with the United States Army. You'll remember that name from way back in our early history. He was an infidel, an atheist, who married a Christian. And they had a little girl. In the early years, she went to church with her mother. But as she became a teenager, she dropped out of church and went with her father to the dance halls. One night, she was out with a group of friends. They had been swimming, and she caught cold. It progressed into pneumonia, and she was dying. Ethan Allen later told a group of businessmen, my daughter said to me, Daddy, I'm dying, am I not? And I replied, yes, honey, you're going to die. Allen and his wife began to weep, but there wasn't a tear in his daughter's eyes. She said, Daddy, since I'm dying, I have to know the answer. I love you, Daddy, and I trust what you say. Daddy, while I'm dying, should I die Mommy's way or your way? And Alan began to weep. He said, I began to cry, and then I threw my body on hers, and I said, Honey, choose Mommy's way. Choose Mommy's way. Quickly, honey, choose Mommy's way. And Alan continued, Before I could get it all said, she went off to meet Jesus. And I will never know until I stand before God whether she chose mommy's way or daddy's way. This isn't a game we're playing. We have the high and holy privilege of investing our lives 
in loving people into choosing Jesus' way. Wow, what a glorious privilege we have. Bow with me in prayer, will you? Lord, I pray that somehow you will help us to share even a little of the depth of your compassion and love for Jackson and for our world. And I pray that you'll help us to find ways, creative ways, to invest our lives, our resources, our ministries, our values into into strengthening the fabric of this city and into leading people to choose Jesus' way for eternity. Lord, I pray for individuals that might be here this morning that aren't in right relationship with you. I, I pray in the, closing, in the closing time that I have this morning that you will draw them to choose Jesus' way of life. Lord, I pray that you'll draw people to Jesus, open the eyes of their understanding, and, and grant them a, even a glimpse of the glory and the majesty and the wonder of the good news of Jesus Christ. Draw us, Lord, to you, I pray in Jesus' name. While our heads are bowed, maybe that's you, and you'd just be open and say, you know, Pastor Bill, I, I'm not ready to meet God. I haven't come to that moment when I've chosen Jesus' way, when I've actually made a decision that I'm going to be a follower of Christ. The Bible says we've sinned, but I don't have to tell you that. We know that. We know we haven't measured up, but the good news is God loves us. In spite of our rebellion, in spite of choosing our own way, Jesus loves us, and he came, and he lived the life we should have lived, and he died the death we deserved so we could live. He was rich, he became poor for us, so we, through his poverty, could be made rich. You can know God today, and all you have to do is repent. That's just a Bible word, it means turn around. You're going your own way, you're living for yourself, and you turn to God and say, God, I want to live for you. I want to be your follower, I want to be your child, will you forgive me? And if we'll make that decision today, Jesus will come into your life, and he'll fill you with himself, and he'll lead you. And if that's you today, I'm not going to embarrass you, but I'm going to ask you just simply lift your hand, and as you raise it, would you look me in the eyes so we can make contact, and just by that act say, Pastor, pray for me this morning. I want to commit my life to Jesus. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you back there. Thank you, ma'am. God bless you. Somebody else, somebody else, slip up a hand, look my way. Anybody? Stand with me, will you, this morning, and could we all pray aloud this prayer, kind of a family prayer, and uh, you that lifted your hands, you pray it aloud too, and God's going to hear you this morning. Pray it with me. Will you, dear Jesus? I know I'm a sinner. I've come short of your glory. I'm sorry for my sin. I ask you to forgive me. I believe Jesus is God. I believe he came to earth as a man. I believe he lived a sinless life. I believe he went to the cross for me. I believe his blood makes me clean. I believe he rose again. I believe he's the God of the universe. Come into my life, Lord Jesus. Forgive my sins. Make me clean. For this day forward, I want to follow you. And today I declare, Jesus is my Lord. And I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. And I thank you that God has saved me. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Thank you, Lord. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Lord, I thank you for my two sisters whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life today. I thank you for the life that's been implanted in them. I thank you for the spirit of Jesus that resides in them now. And I pray, Lord, that you will, that you will continue to grow and develop within them, that you will lead and guide and direct them, that no one or nothing will pluck them out of your hand, that you'll keep them in the center of your will, and that, that they will stand throughout the eternal ages as shining examples of the grace and the mercy and the manifold wisdom of God. Lord, we rejoice today with you and the angels in heaven. The scripture tells us that when somebody comes back to Jesus, that you gather the angels around and say, rejoice with me. You are rejoicing over these people in love today, and we are rejoicing with you and with them. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to have a time of worship, and um, the, uh, the prayer team's going to come. And if you have a need today, uh, would you come and, and let the prayer team pray with you? And you that lifted a hand, when the prayer team comes up, would you slip up and just uh, join one of those uh, team members and say, you know, I committed my life to Jesus, and just let, them, just let them pray with you and affirm you. If you would do that, just come out. Just, just come, on, come on down as the, as the worship team and the prayer team comes, okay? Yeah, come on. Rachel, let me. <laughs> what's As your, you're what's your name? Up, let's just continue huh? to position Kylie. our Kylie. hearts in the Father. Even in this moment now, when there's music not going, we just lift your hands to Him. There's a lot of us in this room that need an encounter with Him. And if that's you, I want to challenge you to just come on up to the altar. Come on up in this front area, come to the side, like get out of your chair, do something to tell yourself like, I'm gonna get an encounter with God today. Whatever it takes, sometimes just that action of moving is what you need. So if you need an encounter, come on up. God's gonna meet with you and we're gonna press in with you. We're gonna believe for healing in the house, amen. We're gonna believe for restoration with relationships. We're going to press in to the Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, we just say, come. Come and do what you want to do. Come and do what you want to do. Our hearts are positioned to you to just receive. We just receive from you, Father. We receive from you. You're good, Father. God, we need an encounter with you. We need a personal encounter. We don't want... We don't want to just go another week where it's just a, a Sunday service. We want to know the Father. We want to know you. Draw us close to your heart. Draw us close to your heart. Thank you, Father. Find your spot. Find your spot with the Father. This is definitely not a organized time. This is a very, this is between you and him. Um, there's there's kingdom authority in the house too so um we have prayer partners up here if you want prayer but each and every one of you are empowered to pray over each other if you need prayer ask for the person next to you to pray over you if you feel like you have a word for somebody go to them this is where we get to practice all the jesus stuff right 
if you have a word for people, go and give it to them. Be encouragers, um, but just be empowered in the house to pray and intercede, okay? Here we go. Thank you, Father. We set our hearts on you. Is my 
Again, just the voices all my life. We need to break that in Jesus' name because he's so good. He's so good. He just wants you to come with complete abandonment to him. He's going to heal. He's going to heal you. He's going to restore you. He's just saying that right now it's just a sweet invitation to his goodness and a sweet, sweet invitation to the heart of the Father. speak against reservations. I speak against walls that are put up that aren't allowing him to come in fully. I command you to leave this house in Jesus' name. Holy Spirit, come. Things that we're believing that are not true, we command truth. We command that you are a healer. You're a provider. You're a good father. You're a shepherd. Good shepherd. You're unwavering in your mission. Your mission is to restore us to the fullness of you. We we want to look like you. Your mission is for heaven to come on earth. If it doesn't look like heaven, then you're not done yet. (laughs) I speak against strongholds of disbelief. You have to leave in Jesus' name. choose to put on a garment of praise and we rejoice in the things that we don't see because we know, we know that who you are and you're working right now. So we lift up our voice. This is why we do that because our words matter because what we say matters. So when we proclaim his goodness, 
we're telling our soul and we're telling our minds to align with who he is and strongholds have to break in Jesus' name. Fear has to go in Jesus' name. The Holy Spirit is looking for people whose hearts are turned to him. Father, we proclaim your goodness. Would you just begin to thank him? Because that's just where it all breaks. Would you just say, thank you, Father. I rejoice in you, Father. My soul rejoices in you. I love you. You're holy. You are righteous. Come on, would you just begin to proclaim that? If you don't know where to start, just say, I thank you, Father. I thank you for the price you paid for me to have life in abundance. I thank you, Father, for everything you've done for me, that I can live free from sin and shame and condemnation. I thank you, Father. I rejoice in what you've done. Teach me your ways, oh God. Make me like you. Come on, body. Come on, church. Come on. He's pressing in with you. His word says, seek him and you will find him. Come on, church. Press into him. Begin to lift up your voice to him. God, we love you. God, we love you. We rejoice in you. You're worthy to be praised. Your name is the name above all names. Your name is good. Your ways are good. Your ways are righteous. Your ways are holy. We sing with the angels as they sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and yet to come. Come on, church, press into him. Press into him, lift your voice. There is no song like the song of the redeemed. <laughs> the angels can't sing our song. There's something so special about the church coming together and singing of the redemption that we've experienced through the Father and through his Son. Only we can sing that song. So come on, press into him. Father, we love you. Father, we rejoice in you. We give you praise. We give you honor and glory forever. Amen. Amen. Oh, glory, Jesus. We worship you, Father. We are hungry for more of you. We are hungry for more of you. Oh, we sit at your feet, Lord. We sit at your feet. We want more of you. Oh, come have your way. Come have your way. Your glory, your glory, your glory fill this room. Your glory fills the temple. Your glory fills the temple. Your glory fills the temple. praying in the spirit of tongues pour out your spirit on his father you said he would on your sons and daughters it's done just lift up that heavenly voice to him
miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. Come on, proclaim. For you are way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. We choose to believe you are way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. You are here. You are here, moving in our midst. I worship you. I worship you. You are here. You are here, working in this place. I worship you, Lord. I worship you. You are here. Let's sing that again. You are here, moving in our midst. I worship you, Lord. I worship you. You are here. You are here, working in this place. I worship you, Lord. Oh, I worship you.
darkness, my God, that is who you ask your neighbor, do you need prayer for anything? Can I pray with you about something? All of us have things. Some of them feel immovable. If you're a believer, would you just person next to you maybe turn to the person you didn't come with. <laughs> Let's just take a minute. Let's just take a minute. Look behind you, look in front of you, look to the side of you. We're going to sing this just as we're coming to a close. Shanna, can I have you come up? Shan. Listen to this one more time as we take time to minister to one another. If no one's with you and you're like, I could actually use prayer, <laughs> and no one's found you, could you just raise your hand and make sure you get prayer? Anybody? Let's continue to minister one another as we see this one more time.